0: Well, you've, maybe you've heard the saying, parenting is not for the faint at heart. Parents, if you've been a parent for very long, you know this. Parenting is a very tough task. Kids, you know, being a kid is hard, right? You, you eat, you sleep, just kidding. Um, but parenting is not for the faint at heart. I want you to think of the tensions that present themselves in parenting. In parenting, a good parent is someone who cares and loves and shows affection and encouragement toward their ki- kids, that cares for their kids, but also, um, but also is willing to confront, is willing to discipline. So we have affection for kids, but we also have to discipline kids to put them in the right place sometimes when they're wrong to teach them. And the reality is is that a loving parent both cares and confronts, both delights and disciplines. I mean, you can look at kids and and see this in the life. When we don't do that, um, think about... um, the parents, some other parent, right? When you see the kid that has maybe permissive parents and they run around like crazy. They have no respect for authority and they have never been told no. Um, There are consequences to that in the kid's life. They don't understand authority. Um, they, uh, They think the answer is yes to all things. But the opposite is true as well. If a parent is just authoritarian, not authoritative, right? A parent should be authoritative, but if a parent is authoritarian... And all they hear from their parents is, no, don't do this, don't do that. They may not show it. They may be buttoned up when they were little kids, but as they grow older, they will rebel. And they will likely find love and care and affection in places that they shouldn't. And so both in your family, genuine love, both cares and confronts. It delights and it disciplines. You know, the church is a family as well. And I think love works the same way in the church. Oftentimes, um, love in the church means shepherding care. It means affection. It means encouragement, but sometimes it means correction. And when that doesn't happen, the church goes astray. In today's text, this is what we're going to see. We're going to see Paul at the end of the book of Titus, which we've been in. What you're going to see him doing is both confronting some people in the church and caring for other people in the church. Turn with me to Titus chapter 3, and we're going to finish out this book in verses 9 through 15. If you think about be- being a parent and you think about both loving your kid by correcting them and loving them by caring and showing affection, sometimes we get it wrong when that happens, right? Sometimes we ought to correct when we're encouraging and sometimes we encourage when we ought to correct and there's great advice in, in, in the scriptures about this, right? The scripture tells us not to provoke our kids. Um, but beyond, beyond even the scriptures, there are good books, right? There are good books that we can read that help us better navigate the wisdom of parenting because it's really difficult. Um, Paul David Tripp books come to mind, right? Shepherding a child's heart, the age of opportunity, James Dobson, right? James Dobson, raising the strong-willed child, how to raise boys, how to raise girls. My mom said about me, either I, the reason I'm not in prison or she's not in prison is because of James Dobson, right? So in the church, we need wisdom as it relates to when to care and also when to confront. And we live in this weird culture. The, the only unforgivable sin in the world that you and I live in is correcting someone because they have their own truth, right? Unless you're correcting somebody because they're correcting someone else. This is the air we breathe, and we often get this wrong in the church, but Paul's going to give us some great wisdom this morning about what that looks like in the church to both care for people and to correct when to do it, when not to do it, how it looks, what it looks like. So Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 15, you're going to see the correction first And then you're in in verses, really, 9 through 11. And then you're going to see the care in verses 12 through 15 as he finishes out the book. And so let me read this passage, or let me read it starting in verse 8. I'm going to give a little context. I'm going to read 8 through 11, and then we're going to talk about a couple of things. And then I'm going to read verses 12 through 15, and we're going to talk about what it looks like to care. So verse 8 uh, we'll pick it up there, Three eight. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to do what? To devote themselves to good works. You've seen this all the way through the book of Titus. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Verse 9, but, that's a contrast, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless, And for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and is self-condemned. The first thing that I would say to you this morning, your first idea in the text here this morning is don't waste your time with foolish arguments. Don't waste your time with foolish arguments. Can I say it in today's vernacular? Say no to the speculative theological clickbait. You've seen clickbait, right? You, you think you, you're, you're on your website or you're on your phone and something looks curious to you and you click it and it's just clickbait and it sends you somewhere else and it wastes your time. Say no to theological clickbait. And this is what you see in verse 9. What's going on? Um, verse 9, but avoid four things, controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. And we've seen this in the front bookend of the book of Titus. Do you remember... Um, Do you remember who was present in the church that Paul said, silence? He said, silence the false teachers. And he talked all about these false teachers, both their behavior and what they believed. And these were, in first century, the Judaizers. And here's effectively what the Judaizers did. Is they took speculative things, they took myths that they created from the law, and said, this is just as important as the gospel. So believe in Jesus, but also believe these speculations, and, and, and if you don't, that you don't get to be a part of our, our, our club over here, our, our club that only we get to be in. And so they were calling people to the law and to works. What's the gospel? The gospel gets lost in that. If you add anything to the gospel, it's not the gospel at all. So don't waste your time with these foolish arguments. It looks like that these are arguments. And if you look at commentators, you can go look it up, and none of them have any really good answers as do the specifics of the controversies of the dissensions of the quarrels related to the law the best we can do is 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 the idea that in the law when you look at genealogies in the old testament they're really important actually the new testament starts with what a genealogy of the lineage of jesus so genealogies in the bible are really important Um, But what they were doing is is they were speculating about those genealogies, it looks like. It looks like they were adding to them. And they were seeing hidden meanings in the genealogies of the Bible that fit with what they wanted to teach and devote themselves to. But the point is this. Here's the bigger point that Paul's making. He's saying, don't devote your time to foolish speculations or controversies. You're wasting your time. What should you be doing? You should be devoting your time to what? Good works. Good works. You should be devoting your time to good works, not arguing about philosophical, speculative things, and that's what was happening um, in this church, and this is why he calls them um, to talk about this. You see this in the beginning of Titus. If you turn one page to Titus chapter 1, verses 14, look at it there. It says, don't devote, he's describing the Judaizers and the false teachers, and he says this, they devote themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. This stuff is just clickbait. So the question is that you may have in your mind right now, when should I engage? This text is saying avoid foolish arguments, avoid controversies, avoid speculations. When is it appropriate for me to engage? Because there are plenty of things that we should be engaging in as it relates to conversations with people about the gospel, conversations with people about the truth. Should we just avoid all of these things or not? Um, I've never shared any of my artwork ever, um, but I'm going to share with you. So don't laugh, okay? You got, you got it up there? See how good I get out? All right. Don't make fun. I worked really hard on that. I should have let my wife do it. Um, but here's what I would, here's what I would say. I'm, this is really meant to give you some helpful, I hope helpful, understanding of what you should believe most dogmatically, what you should hold on to a little bit looser, and what things or opinions and other things that are just speculation, is, and how you deal with them. Because between social media and the conversations that you get in every day, what you think about parenting, when do I engage this when do I engage that? Should I, should I avoid this? Should I let it go? Should I not? The same is true in theological conversation often, especially when it's speculation. So theological triage is what I would call it. Triage is The idea is that when a person comes into the hospital, you've got to make a decision as a nurse or as a doctor, which one of these things is most important to deal with first, second, third, fourth. And I think theological triage is something that helps you and me as we think about what's most important and most essential, what's less essential, and what doesn't really matter. And so let me give you some, some legs to this. Dogma, and, and the, you don't like the word, but dogma is a category. You could go first level, second level, third level if you want to. But dogma are essentials of the faith. If you go look at our doctrinal statement, our doctrinal statement as a church has these things, like the person and work of Christ, that we are saved by Christ alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, Those type of things, that the Bible is the Word of God, that the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God, three and one, those are dogmatic things that I'm going to have more than a conversation. If somebody comes here and they want to teach something contrary to dogma, things that we hold on to that makes a Christian a Christian, then we're going to have some conversation. We're not going to avoid that. We're going to have that conversation. Those are the essentials. Those are the things we, we die on a hill for as a Christian. That's dogma. And then there are doctrinal matters. And doctrinal matters are important. Um, I can sit down uh, for a cup of coffee with a friend who may disagree about the end times. He believes, um, whether you believe in a pre-tribulational rapture or a mid-tribulational rapture or a post-tribulational rapture. And some of you are going, what are you talking about? It's all right. Whether, you, whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminian, um, there are all kinds of different doctrinal convictions that I have that that we can engage in, that are healthy to engage in, and we should engage in those things. But they don't reach the level of of dogma. They don't reach the level level of gospel truths, hills that I die on. And then there's opinions. Let me give you some opinions. First opinions. Um, Opinions about what kind of philosophy of ministry we have in the church. Like, do we do Sunday school or do we do community groups? Do we sing hymns or do we sing worship songs? Do we have in a band or do we have a choir? Um, There's some theological things that we can even discuss uh, related to that. Should a kid get baptized who makes a profession of faith at age seven, at age seven, or should they wait until they're 18? Right? So there's all kinds of uh, opinions that may be important that you may even have a conviction about, but look at where it's at in the circle. It's really important. We tend to do what? We tend to put everything in the first category, And you know what happens when we do that? When we do that, everything's important, and then nothing's important. Um, Dogma is important. Doctrine is important. And as this goes out, it ought to affect the way that we talk about it with other people. And then there's speculation. Like, the Mayan calendar ended here. That's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. The Mayan calendar ended, so Jesus must be coming back. The Bible says that the Father only knows when Jesus is coming back. Not Nostradamus, not the Mayan calendar. Those are speculations There's speculations about that. Um, Think about some other speculations that that we could go to. The the cloud outside, it looks like Jesus, so what does that mean? Or the dream that I have, those are speculations. I had a dream, so what does it mean? There may be something to that, but it's speculative. I don't have truth around that. Some of you are too young for this, but Omega Code, anybody? Like the numbers in the Bible and what they mean? That's speculative stuff. If demons are over zip codes or are they not, I don't know. That's speculative stuff. Okay, so, but here's what's happening. The reason I'm showing you this is to help you navigate, like, where do I put what I want to argue about? You can add opinion to, uh, you, you can do all kinds of things with this, but it helps you give a category to when you're engaging with somebody on social media or in person, your friend, your family member, how far are you going to take it? right? Speculation. Here's what's happening in the first century. Speculation became dogma. That's what's happening in this text. That's what's happening in Crete. All these speculations from the Judaizers are becoming gospel truth. They're not gospel truth. So that's what Paul is dealing with here. So here are a few questions. When you think about engagement and, and interaction around any of those things, especially speculation, Um, you've got to ask yourself some questions. Hopefully this is helpful. This is really practical. Who am I talking to? Am I talking to the one who's um, promoting this speculation? Or am I talking to someone oftentimes who's heard it from the one promoting it and is asking you, what do you think about it? Those are two different conversations. If it's the person who just wants to argue and promoting it, I'm going to avoid it. But if it's somebody who's a friend of mine, like I got a text about two months ago from a former student, asking me about the Mayan calendar, I was able to say to him, I didn't avoid that. I said, hey, brother, um, that's speculation. Um, Jesus said that there are signs of when he would come back, but he's not, God's not given us a date, and even Jesus doesn't know, so don't speculate. So you should engage that. Who am I talking to? What's the platform? If I'm on social media, should I take it to Messenger? Should I take it to having coffee? You know, how do I deal with this? Or just put it out there for the world to see. Sometimes you put it out there for the world to see. What happens is your unbelieving friends on Facebook, guess what happens? They're like, yep, there are those Christians arguing again. Think about the platform in which it comes. What theological triage category is it coming in? Those are helpful. Um, Does the person just want to argue? Do I just want to argue? Sometimes, right? And, And... Is there any good end result that this might have? This text says that speculation is worthless. It wastes your time. You could be doing other things that are for the kingdom that are better. If you choose to engage, is it bringing? There's a wise man in the room I heard this from this week and never heard it this way. If you choose to engage, do you bring heat or do you bring light to the situation? So, how do you spend your time? Paul's concern here is that people are stopping and not devoting themselves to good works, and rather they're, they're just speculating uh, about philosophical things that don't even matter. So is it worth it? So how do you spend your time? Good works or minutiae? And maybe, this is true in my life, I would say, how do I curb my propensity toward arguing for arguing's sake? How can triaging and categorizing this Help when I engage. Is it worthwhile? Is it profitable? Man, I want to be a church that's committed to being gospel and deed-centric. I don't want to waste our time as a church. I don't want to waste your time on a Sunday morning um, speculating, being a pastor or a church who speculates and lets minor things become major things. I want to be a church that is sound in faith and devoting their time and effort to good works. Amen. But what do we do if this kind of stuff is being propagated in the church uh, with people who want to stir things up for others? What do we do about that? Because that's a different thing. Look at verse 10 and 11. Verse 10 and 11 say something different. It doesn't say avoid, right? In verse 9, it's avoid. In verse 10, as for the person who stirs up division... This could be about speculation or it could be in general. Um, A person who stirs up division after warning him twice have nothing more to do with him. So there is a place to deal with a divisive person in the church, particularly as it relates here in context to a speculative theological issue, a person who is trying to be divisive in a church and lead people astray. That's chapter 1. That's what you see in chapter 1. So we have to deal with the persistently divisive person. That's your second point. You know why? Because it harms the unity of the church. It leads the church down a road that it shouldn't go. And again, this is likely the Judaizers. But it's a broader, this is kind of a broader idea um, for this. And so this brings up a topic. This brings up the topic of what we would call in correction, when we think about correction about church discipline. You see it there where he says, after you warn him once or twice, have nothing more to do with him. There's a number of places in the New Testament where Jesus actually gives, I think the only prescription that Jesus or anybody gives in the New Testament is in Matthew 18 about church discipline. When if you have a person who is in sin and the person doesn't repent, you take one person to him and then two, and then you tell it to the church. And if he doesn't repent, then you ask him to leave and hoping that that person will repent. That's the process. It's interesting because in the New Testament, when you, when you see church discipline, there are three reasons. Um, there are three reasons. One is moral, like a, moral, a major moral failure. The other one is um, a theological error. And the, other, and the last one is a relational error. Like I'm slandering someone in my church. Those are the three categories. And you see that here, that there is doctrinal error and it is creating division in the church. And so you have to deal with it. You can't let it fester or it will grow. And so you have to deal with this. And this is what Paul is telling Titus to do at the bookend of the book. But the goal of church discipline is what? What's the goal of this, even for the person who's divisive? Number one, it's the church as a whole is meant to display the glory of God. And so when the outsider looks at the church, they ought to see Jesus. And if they're not seeing Jesus, that trumps the individual. And so the first point of church discipline is that the, the glory of God is continuing to be displayed in the church because the church is what? It's a light. The church is a light to a, to a lost world. And the second point is this, that that person may be confronted so that they will what? That they'll come back. That's what chapter 1 says about the false teacher. Silence them so that they'll do what? So that they'll come back. So that they'll be sound in faith. So that you correct them in such a way that they would come back. That God would convict them of their sin and come back. So call to repentance. And then third, you see this in the New Testament. You see when sin is called out in a church for any of those reasons, it makes people have a healthy fear of God. And it makes people consider their own ways. When you think about someone who has fallen into sin and it becomes public, one of the first responses I have is, Lord, keep me, through your grace, keep me from that. There's a a soberness that happens when when church discipline has to happen in the church. But Paul tells them, he tells them, you got to deal with it. You can't let it continue. Just because we live in a culture that we live in today um, that doesn't like to confront, there are things in our church that that the Bible says that we, we need to confront. We need to confront for the person. We need to do it in the right way. But we need to do it for the glory of his name. G.K. Chesterton said this um, a long while back. In 1908, G.K. Chesterton said this about the culture that he lived in in his time. And I wonder if this is true. And I wonder why this idea of church discipline is like, hey, can we just get to the next verse? Because I, I really, this is making me really uncomfortable, right? G.K. Chesterton said this, but what we suffer from today, 1908, is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction, meaning we're modest about truth, where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, not about truth. Doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. That was 1908. I wonder what GK would say today, right? That, yes, it's important for us to show grace and truth. It's important the way in which we go about correcting, just like it's important in our family with our children. It's super important in the way that this happens. The Bible talks about that all the way through, but we get very nervous about this. But we've got the hum- our humility in the wrong place. The truth of God is eternal. We ought to be confident in it. We ought not beat people over the head with it. We to be compassionate and kind and share the gospel with people who don't believe in that way. But we can still hold on and maintain truth. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? This is the idea. So we've seen two forms of correction. One is really avoiding, avoiding silly controversies that waste our time. And the other one is to really reject the divisive person. But what does shepherding care look like? Glad we're here. Verse 12, all right? Verse 12, 12 through 15. What does shepherding care look like in the church? What does caring for the people in the church look like? Look at verse 12. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis. You guys want to read this? I, I worked on those words this week. This is not easy stuff. For I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to, to speed Zenos, the lawyer. Brent, you're in luck. There are lawyer Christians in the Bible. Uh, and Apollos. You knew I was going there. To speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, see to it that they lack nothing and let our people learn to devote themselves to what? Here it is again, good works. So as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful, all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So, this is an interesting text. I want you to look particularly at verse 13 and 14. We'll come back to verse 12, but I want you to look at something in verse 13 and 14. What does care look like in the church? Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos. Remember who Apollos is from the book of Acts? He was the dude um, that had come to faith and he was sharing. Um, he was sharing about the truth and Priscilla and Aquila had to take him to the side and say, hey, you don't know a lot yet and there's a few things that you didn't get right but I'm glad that you're doing it. And they taught him closer and more the way. I would love to know that conversation. Like, what exactly did he say that was wrong? Ever been there as a new believer where you have zeal, but you don't have knowledge yet, and you're passionate about Jesus, and you got a brother or a sister who takes you to the side and says, here, let me show you closer the way. But here's the neat thing about Apollos. Apollos was a faithful servant, and he was a great order of the word of God. He was a great teacher of the word of God, so much so that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, what do you see? There was divisions in the church because people were following Paul and other people were following Apollos. So he had some cred. Like, Apollos had a following. He had people who looked at him and said, this is a faithful man of God. Here's what I think's happening here. I think Apollos, and there's different takes on this, but I think Apollos and Zenas have been, at least for a time, they've been in Crete. I think they've been in Crete with Titus. Paul sends Titus there to set things right. And I think they've been with him and they're leaving and going on their way. They're kingdom travelers. They've been here to equip and to help get this church healthy with Titus. And they're about to leave. And what does he call, what does Paul call them to do with him? So that they lack nothing. Look at verse 14. And let our people learn. That's a, this is a learned process to devote themselves to good works as to help cases of urgent need. What's the case of urgent need right here? From verse 14. It's verse 13. Zenos And Apollos are leaving. They need hospitality. They may, as missionaries, they may need money and care to be sent on their way. This is the Cretan church supporting, I think, supporting missionaries who are going to another place. People who have invested deeply here in Crete, but they're going somewhere else. So he, He doesn't just say, devote yourselves to good works like he has in other places. He gets more granular. And I think that's your point here. We've got to get granular about helping others we got to get granular down in the weeds of helping others. And this is what I think you see in this book. It's easy to say, hey, let's be a people about good works. But Paul says here, no, be a people about good works who meet urgent needs. The urgent need in the church there was that Zenas and Apollos were leaving and going on further missionary journey, and they needed to send them out. They needed to be hospitable. They needed to give them funds and money and resources to go do missionary work. People who had been faithful there. And so we got to get granular about helping others in the household of faith first. That's what the Bible says. When we talk about good deeds and helping people and caring for people, the first place is the household of faith. So we help people here first, and then we help everyone else. And by the way, often we use that, right, to say, hey, we're not going to help anybody else. We're just going to help and be benevolent to people in the church. It's both. But we start in the household of faith, and that's what you see in this passage. You know, um, there's a lot of ways to do this. Uh, We've only been here a few months, um, but you guys have done that for us. Um, Many of you know that Millie's dad has cancer, and um, she's been going back and forth to Seguin. If you don't know that, please pray for him. Um, But a couple weeks ago, a guy grabbed a, um, a Yeti, and he had a cooler full of food for me because I don't... I'm not a very good cook. Imagine that. And um, so when Melanie's out of town, then there's food for me to give the kids when in the morning, at night. And that's a beautiful picture of being intentional about meeting needs. I don't know about urgent needs, but meeting needs, right? I want you to meet my friend, George. I got a picture of George. We got a picture of, in the back there. Oh, huh, I don't see, oh, sorry. I'm looking here. He's here. This is George. George, uh, is Paul Benitez here? Where's Paul? Paul, uh, George is like the Paul of, of the church I was in at first. He, he is full of life. He loves people. And he is a man of good works. Uh, he owns a, a restaurant downtown called Tejas Grill. And um, he was a faithful brother at the first church. I had three of his, all three of his kids in my youth group. Uh, he wouldn't let uh, the church hardly ever, and was a decent-sized church, pay for food. He would donate food. He would do all kinds of things for our youth group and our kids. Um, he served at church at the park downtown, uh, and nobody really even knew he served almost every Saturday for 10, 15 years down there. He was the guy that would give you his shirt off his back. He and I almost died in a, in a in a, in a car together, he, he's also the guy that he did life to the full. He liked horsepower. And so at his daughter's graduation, William was like not even born yet or maybe a couple months old, and um, he had an old 69 Camaro, and we almost died in it. We hit a, almost hit a house, and uh, he went to the hospital. So this guy was full of life and full of good works. Um, and um, last week, he had a brain aneurysm, age 65. And I remember um, driving up to the church, and we were kind of going to hit the memorial service right on time. And I said, we're not going to be able to park in the parking lot. There's no way we're going to be able to park in the parking lot. We parked way down the street. We walked in, and his three kids um, got up. I don't know how they did it. They got up and shared more about their dad. His two daughters got up and said, the reason I never questioned the love of the Father for me is because my dad loved me. He told me I was beautiful. He served me. He cared for me. He said, even as a grown-up who's married and has kids, both of his daughters live in Houston, he would bring food to us once a week for the week. He would take my grand, his grandkids to Costco and make Costco runs every week, not like every so, every week. This guy loved taking initiative. He was granular with his good works, and he used food and, and how funny it was to do it. So figure out in your own life, what does that look like? To give your life away, to get after it as it relates to helping others and caring for others. What urgent needs can we be meeting? Missionaries, um, somebody in the hospital, um, somebody who's sick. What urgent needs? A mom, we got a lot of babies around here. Um, we have like maternity leave for C3 kids because we have so many little ones around here how can we help those moms and dads right how can we help them we got to be intentional we want to be intentional about good works both inside and outside the church what urgent needs can we be meeting kids meals is one way to do that just get real granular with you kids meals in the next few weeks bring some food we'll go take food to people and it's my heart that as we move forward into the new year that this is a regular thing that we're doing whether it's kids' meals, or whether it's supporting Feed, Teach, Hope, um, or being an active participant in our community as well as far away, Um, the thing about the book of Titus is it's be sound in faith. But man, um, sound in faith and good works go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. I can't escape that. One's not over here and one's over here. It just, it's woven through this book that adorns the gospel and the truth of God's So We've got to get granular. And your last point is this, and it's a broad point for, from verses 12 through 15, but you can't really miss it. In God's family, we play as a team. In God's family, we play as a team. There are no Long Rangers in this deal. And we've been talking about the idea of community and having community together. I want you to take a look at these, these leaders and how they function. In chapter one, you saw Paul saying the first thing that Titus needed to do in these churches is to appoint not an elder, but elders, plural, plural leadership. And I want you to see, this is a window into Paul's life a little bit, as well as the leadership structure of this church. Verse 12, when I send Artemis and Tiochus to you, do your best to come to me at Napolis. So Tiochus, we we don't know anything about Artemis, but we know Tiochus is a faithful um, servant of Paul. Paul's raised him up and, and I think about a football, sorry, ladies, but I think about a football team. Some of you like football. Um, I think about a football team, and I think about this situation right here. When you think about a football team, you think about a GM or a coach, and what do they do? They lead, they direct, they train, they put players in, they take players out. Um, and I think that's what you see with Paul here. You see Paul leading and directing and enlisting servicemen and women to serve, disciples, shepherd the church, and they follow him. That he's the leader, and they follow him. And then you have kind of the field generals, like the quarterback here, and that would be Titus. And what Paul wants to do is he wants to take Titus out, because he wants to go spend time with him, and Nicopolis, because they're going to go plan the next place in which they're going to minister to. And then they're going to put either Artemis or Tychicus in as kind of the field general. And then you see the people who play on the team. Look. You see the body. Instruct them to learn to devote themselves to good works. Help Zenos. Help Apollos. Send them on their way. So I I see this team. You see it? I see this team that Paul directs and coaches. You see on the field leaders, and then you see people who play. Um, I don't see Paul being alone. As a matter of fact, he wants people to be with him. Here? If you look at all the other places where you get a window into the life of Paul, he's not the CEO that's at the top that's lonely. He's the guy who brings people close, and and they minister to him, and he ministers to them. You see it in Romans chapter 16. You see a window into his life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Colossians chapter 4, Paul has people all around him. He's not the lone ranger, lead pastor, or pioneer church planter. He is with a team, and they were ministering to him, and he is ministering to them. I mean, if he had an evaluation as a CEO, it might be seen as weakness because he says, I need Titus. I need him. But this is what you see in the church. You see a plural leadership. You see plural leadership teams. You don't see any Lone Rangers here. When I think of that, I, I, I think of a guy named Mark Dever. Maybe you've heard that name before. I went on a weekender, a couple, about eight years ago to Capitol Hill Baptist Church in D.C., and Mark Dever is pretty well known uh, together for the gospel. And um, I just thought, okay, this is Mark Dever. Like, am I going to get him to sign the book, one of, one of the nine marks books that I have? And it was really cool because what you saw, you saw him, a window into his life. He brought younger men in to evaluate his sermon, and he let them just roast him. And he learned from it. He was taking notes. And you watched him on a Saturday night before a Sunday morning, before he was going to preach the next morning. You saw him on his porch with three or four guys, younger guys, talking to them and say, hey, how, should, how do you think I should um, illustrate this point? Or is that point clear? And you're watching that and you're thinking, man, that's a beautiful picture of what it looks like to be on a team with a leader who's leading and directing but he's opened his life up. That's how you have longevity as a church. That's how you have longevity and leadership. And whether it's um, the lead pastor needing that or whether it's the people of the church on ministry teams, community group leaders, whatever we're doing, we need one another. We need to do ministry together. This is how Jesus did it. He did it with 12 guys and he's Jesus and he sent them out one by one, two by two, right? This is how it works. So in God's family, we play as a team. It's been a huge blessing to come into this church, and even in an almost year transition, and step into a, a scenario where there's teams of leaders that are meeting together and doing ministry together. Honestly, that saves me about a year of work to go, who, who can lead this and who can lead that? And, and they're forming teams. That's a beautiful thing for somebody to, like me to step into. So you guys have done a great job at that. So this speaks to community, that we do ministry as a team, that that we don't do ministry as lone rangers. So the questions may be, are you a part of community? Whether you're in a leadership role here or not, are you a part of this community? If this is your church, are you interacting with anybody here? Are you doing life with anybody here, whether it's community groups or, or, or whatever means that is? Are you investing in anybody's life, in the life of this church? So loving the church and seeing a healthy church means caring, means correcting, means having a healthy leadership team, and that's what I think Paul is trying to get at, both caring and correcting in this passage. I go to the chiropractor about once a month, just self-disclosure here, um, but I, I go to the chiropractor so I don't have as much pain um, and tension in my back and my lower back because I've swung a golf club like 30,000 hours, and um, that's not a real good thing for your back, apparently. And I'm going to keep doing it, so um, that means that I need to go to a chiropractor. And I go to the chiropractor to help me relieve that tension and pain. And what does he do? He aligns my back. He brings alignment. He, he takes those, uh, my spine, and he relieves pressure that's there. You know, Paul sent Titus to Crete to make crooked things straight, and the way that he did it, the way that he did it is he appointed elders in the church who who teach sound doctrine. And he silenced the false teachers. And he said to them, You need older, you need to invest in younger, to be an example to younger. And younger, you need to learn from from the older. And he called people to submit to authority and work. He called them to be a witness to the lost world through the power of the Spirit and the grace of God. And the way that they do it is through the lens of the gospel. You can't miss the gospel in the book of Titus. That out of the gospel, we get our fuel and motivation to do good works. It's a beautiful picture. You know, in a church, what often happens with the amens, we're not an amening church, right? We've got a few ameners. We've got a few here and there. But but one of the things that happens in a church, you either get amens sometimes in a church like, maybe like ours, for talking about being sound in doctrine, you get amens there, or you get amens and going, hey, we're going to be a witness. You know where amen should happen? It should happen in the tapestry of both of those things. That we're going to be sound, and we're going to be a church that's sound in faith, and we're going to be a church out of that, that does good works, amen. for the glory of God. Amen. Thank you. For the glory of God that people might come to know Jesus. The watching world. That they could look at our our works and say there's something different. And they can look at our doctrine and say it points to Christ. And so your takeaway for the book of Titus is doctrine inspires deeds and deeds adorn the gospel. Doctrine inspires deeds and deeds adorn doctrine. They go hand in hand. Let me pray. Father, make us a church that's passionate. It's passionate about being sound in faith and getting the truth right, and knowing God by his truth from his word, and a people who do something about it, a people who leave this place every week and are about good works, are about helping people in need, both inside and outside the church, to be the hands and feet of Christ. Not one or the other, but both learners and those who bring light to a watching world. But Father, we know that we can't do that without your grace, your grace that has saved us, your grace that has transformed us, your grace that continues to train us and renew us. And so we ask that you continue to do a work in our heart to, to train us in your grace, in Jesus' name, amen.